This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker, in for Meghna Chakrabarty. It was two years ago this week that marked the start of Russia's war with Ukraine. That's when the world began to see more of Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. He appeared outside the presidential headquarters in Ukraine shortly after Russia first attacked in February of 2022. In a 30-second selfie video posted on social media, Zelensky had a clear message. He's saying our soldiers are here, the citizens are here, we're all here, we will defend our independence, that's how it will go, glory to Ukraine. A few days later, in his State of the Union address, President Biden pledged U.S. support to Ukraine. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Is that wall of strength still strong? And how has Ukraine been able to hold its own these past two years? What was predicted to be just a short battle where Russian military power would quickly overtake its smaller neighbor is now a two-year-long war that some worry could potentially threaten the globe. Our guest this hour has a lot of knowledge about Ukraine, both professional and personal experience. The Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent and and Ukrainian author Yaroslav Travamov is with us. His latest book is titled Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Yaroslav, welcome to On Point. Great to be in the show. So let's. we should start by saying your book is, is really about the first year of the war between Russia and Ukraine. And let's start where you begin the book, which is this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which you say it wasn't a 2022 conflict, but actually has very strong roots in back in 2014. Can you explain? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're now um, marking actually the 10th anniversary of the war because Russia interfered in Ukraine militarily in 2014 by invading Crimea and annexing that peninsula, but also by uh, really sponsoring a really bloody uh, conflict in the eastern Donbass region. 14,000 people died there in 2014, 2015. And the rest of the world sort of looked at it and shrugged and didn't really intervene. Uh, Ukraine was begging for weapons. It never received any. And that sense of impunity is probably what uh, convinced President Putin that he could invade the entire country. And again, nobody will do anything. Hmm. So so here we are going from 2014 to 2022. There are certainly rumors of uh, an impending Russian attack coming to Ukraine. Can you tell us what it was like at that time? What, what were you hearing from folks? Did many people flee? Like, Describe what, what was happening just before the Russian attacks. Well, it was more than rumors. You know, uh, the director of the Central, Central Intelligence Agency, uh, Bill Burns, had flown to Kiev to meet mm-hmm. with President Zelensky and to warn him of very mm-hmm. detailed intelligence that the Russians were planning to come in via Belarus to uh, kill or capture him, to decapitate the government, to create filtration camps for the Ukrainian elite. So pretty much the entire Russian war plan. Uh, and these warnings were also public to mm-hmm. a great extent. Uh, but no one knew exactly when, right? No one knew exactly when. 
Right. There were dates that were being offered, uh, and then the invasion wouldn't happen on their date. And you mm-hmm. know, the Russians also kept delaying it in part because of the Olympics that were underway in China at the time. And so, um, really, for me, having covered so many wars in my life, the signs were pretty clear. And so I had I was in Kiev for a whole month before the war began, really preparing for it. Uh, but for many people in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities who have never seen war proper war in their own hometown. It was something unimaginable. It was unthinkable. And I think until the very last day, there was a sense of this this can't possibly happen. And there were people fleeing. There were people stocking up. There wasn't any run on banks or on cash machines. In fact, life was very, very normal up until the last day. Mm. And what were uh, politicians saying? What were the country's leaders on both sides saying at that particular time? What were they telling the public? Was that contributing to this sort of uh, almost disbelief, if you will, or non-acceptance that it was going to happen anytime soon? What, what were the public statements like? Well, President Zelensky was calling for calm and downplaying the risk of a full-scale invasion. Uh, but the Ukrainian military was preparing, uh, secretly in part because they didn't want the Russians to know that they're preparing. Uh, as General Zaluzhin, the commander of Ukrainian forces at the time, said, you know, he wanted the Russians to think we're just checking out Facebook and uh, smoking <coughs> uh, joints all the time. <laughs> and uh, in fact, they were successful in in saving the Ukrainian air defenses and much of the air force this way. Uh, as for me... The day before the invasion, I went to see the former president of Ukraine, uh, Petro Poroshenko, uh, who called me for an interview. And then after that, leaned towards me and said, you know, tomorrow at 4 a.m. there will be war. You better go to the airport and get out of here if you want to leave. Uh, So clearly, you know, if he knew, lots of other people in government also knew. Mm. But I think the fact that Russia had massed a relatively small force around Ukraine, only about 200,000 people, 200,000 soldiers, To many Ukrainian leaders, it was a sign that it wouldn't go for Kiev. It wouldn't go for the whole country because it was just too small. And it only made sense if you expected that the Ukrainian army wouldn't fight. And which probably was was the expectation in Moscow because Russian officials were saying that Ukrainians or Russians are one people. Russian military analysts were predicting that Ukrainian officers will switch sides right away. And, uh, in fact, Russian troops were carrying parade uniforms because they really expected to be in Kiev in a couple of days. And have a victory parade. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, You wrote that there were documents that uh, were found on Russian officers suggesting that this would take about 10 days in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, and it's not just the Russians who were expecting this. Uh, Let's be frank, Mm. the U.S. and other Western governments had the very same expectations. The U.S. had closed down its embassy in Kiev, withdrew diplomats, withdrew personnel, and gave only a symbolic amount of weapons to Ukraine that was really, you know, ammunition for an insurgency, you know, some anti-tank missiles, uh, but not really uh, weaponry that is necessary for conventional war, because the expectation was that the Ukrainian army will collapse. Hmm. And how did it stay afloat for the most part, would you say? Why didn't it collapse? I think there are so many reasons. Uh, One of them is just how much Ukraine had changed since 2014. When this conflict first began, uh, there wasn't really much hatred for Russia in in the Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. Russia, for many, was a country with uh, higher wages, better job opportunities, 
Zelensky himself at the time uh, was working in Moscow. He hosted the New Year's uh, Day show on Russian state television on January 1st, 2014. But then the Ukrainians saw what happens when the Russians come in, when the Russians seize their cities. And there was a, this eight-year experience of Russia ruling uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, the two biggest cities of the Donbass. And there, uh, you know, the economy collapsed. It was basically gangster mob rule. Uh, and majority of the population escaped that. They voted with their feet and they fled to the rest of Ukraine, to the West, anywhere but not to live in that uh, sort of the new, quote-unquote, Russian world uh, promised by Putin. And so everyone else in Ukraine saw that experience. And when I traveled in January to places like Kharkiv, you know, the biggest Russian-speaking city in Ukraine, there were 100,000 refugees from Donbass there. And so everybody knew that life under the Russians would be infinitely worse than what they had now. And I think this spirit of resistance seep through the entire society. And that's not something that the Russians realized and were counting on. So all these cleavages and divisions that Ukraine had in the past over language, over relations with Russia, were no longer there But by the time the Russian um, armies crossed the border and invaded. Mm. You know, we'll talk about um, the Ukraine fighters in just a bit, but I, I, I kind of think we need to lay out what, what do you think Russia's main objective here is and what is Ukraine's? Can you tell us what, what's the ultimate goal of both of these countries here? Well, I think the Russian objective is very clear and it hasn't changed since the beginning. The Russian objective is to wipe out Ukraine as a state, as a culture, and even as a language and uh, and any sort of viable separate entity. Uh, the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, who is the leader of uh, Russia's ruling party and often says what Putin thinks, just in January said that no Ukrainian state, no matter how friendly, uh, will be acceptable to us. We will wipe it out, you know, five or ten years down the line, and the Ukrainians have a choice to be Russians or to die. And so I think uh, the struggle is existential. It's not about territory. It's not about how much of Ukraine Russia will grab. I mean, the mm -hmm. ultimate goal of Russia is, of the Russian state, is uh, to basically wipe out Ukraine. And does and that so, go? Uh, does that go beyond Ukraine? Do you think for Russia? Do you, because of course there are concerns among world leaders that it does and could. Do you think right now the intent on Russia's part is to go beyond Ukraine? Well, I'll just quote President Putin. He mm. himself uh, last year uh, said that he sees himself as continuing the work of uh, Emperor Peter the Great in collecting historical Russian lands, quote-unquote. And he named among them the town of Narva, which is in Estonia, a member of the European Union and a member of NATO. So clearly, uh, you know, the, as the saying goes in Russia, you know, whatever Russian flag was once raised, it's Russia. And what about Ukraine? What do you think Ukraine's main goal is here? Is it to just survive or what is it? I mean, Ukraine's goal, as, as enunciated by the government and I think shared by the vast majority of Ukrainians, is to reclaim all of its land that is internationally recognized, including Crimea, including Donbass. Hmm. Obviously, it's very hard. And we've seen that last year's counteroffensive didn't really bring much success, in part because, uh, you know, the historical opportunity to do so was missed in 2022. 
All right. We're going to continue our conversation after a break. We're talking about the two years of war between Russia and Ukraine and what comes next. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Today we're talking about the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're joined by Yaroslav Travamov, chief foreign affairs correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. He's also author of the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. In the book, he writes about many of the volunteers who are on the front lines in Ukraine. And I want to bring up now the story of Ukrainian professional tennis player turned soldier Sergei Stakovsky. He was with his family on vacation in Dubai when Russia invaded Ukraine. But then the 36-year-old returned to his home country to fight because he says for him, there just was no other option. It's not about obligation about defending your country. It's about obligation of what's right and what's wrong. And what Russia did and what they still continue in doing on Ukrainian soil is not wrong. It's just Immoral, unacceptable. I don't know even the words which we could describe what is happening and what they continue to do. And Stokowski says he plans to fight until his country is free again. Ukrainians are not going to live under rule of one person. They want their rights and they want their freedom. The only way Russia can take away these rights and this freedom, they have to kill us all. That was Sergei Stokovsky, a professional tennis player turned soldier in Ukraine. We're talking about the war with Yaroslav Travamov, who's chief foreign affairs correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. And I'm wondering, Yaroslav, if you could tell us, is that story that we just heard from Sergei, is that sort of a common story that people in Ukraine are very motivated uh, to, to fight? And and we also should mention that Sergei could have been exempted from fighting uh, had he chosen to seek an exemption, but he didn't. Uh, there just seems to be so much motivation. Is that really what is is fueling things in Ukraine uh, so much and allowed it to fight off uh, a much larger military power? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And at the beginning of the show, you uh, played this clip from President Zelensky when he came out and said, we're all here. Mm. And I remember driving into Kiev the next morning and hundreds and hundreds of men and women were coming out of high-rises and heading to a stadium to pick up weapons. 
and go to the front line right away uh, because they were telling me, you know, what else are we going to do? Our city is being attacked. Somebody has to defend it. And so uh, I've, I've spent some time with Sergei on the front lines in Bakhmut, uh, one of the probably bloodiest places during this war. And uh, when he was crossing the border on foot into Ukraine in the first days of the war, he was crossing with another character in the book, a, uh, a Ukrainian entrepreneur who was skiing in Austria and then rushed back and used his own funding uh, and, and the money of other entrepreneurs to create an entire brigade hmm. that's fought on the Kharkiv front. And so uh, it's, it was really common to see as Ukrainian women and children were leaving the country towards Poland and, and the West, Ukrainian men were coming back from abroad to pick up weapons and fight. You know, uh, it seems that there were so many volunteers on on the Ukrainian side. There are many people on the Russian side, mercenaries, uh, Chechen fighters. Um, Did this change the tone of the war, do you think, or from what you witnessed? I mean, how did it affect things to have very different groups of people fighting? Well, on the Russian side, it wasn't just mercenaries, mm. it was prisoners. Right. And uh, especially in the Battle of Bakhmut, it was uh, Russian murderers, rapists, you know, uh, and other common criminals who had a choice. You either spend the rest of your life in prison camps or you go to Ukraine and if you survive six months on the battlefield, which not many did, then you're free. Mm-hmm. And so it's these people who were thrown by the thousands and the thousands against Ukrainian volunteers who included People like Sergei, you know, we included uh, Ukrainian singers, poets, you know, some of the cultural elite. And and uh, Sergei told me at the time in Bakhmut, you know, we are losing our war, our best. Ukraine is losing their best and Russia is losing their worst in this war. And unfortunately, that's true because a great many of these volunteers have died in the last two years. Hmm. Why was Bakhmut uh, one of the bloodiest battles? What what Can you tell our, our listeners what happened there? Well, Bakhmut is a city, uh, was a city of about 70,000 people. And I remember going there before the war to taste the sparkling wines that it was famous for. It had this big Mittal Champenoise winery there. Uh, but that became the the biggest battle of last year. And it was because uh, Wagner, a group led by uh, Prigozhin, Evgeny Prigozhin, who has since been you know, muting and then has since died in a plane crash, mm-hmm. <coughs> really made it their mission to seize it at any cost. And by Prigozhin's own reckoning, they lost 30,000 people dead for this little town. And uh, Ukraine, unfortunately, also lost a great many soldiers there. And once Russia finally captured it in May last year, there was not a single building standing there. It mm-hmm. was a town with a population of zero. And that's unfortunately what it looks like when Russia takes Ukrainian cities. The city of Avdiivka that the Russians took just in recent days looks exactly the same. And the Russians pay the same price of tens and th- tens of thousands of soldiers, hundreds of tanks and, and uh, armored personnel carriers and fighting vehicles to just take smoldering ruins. Why do people stay 
in in these communities, or why did they at least? Uh, you you have a lot of anecdotes in your book that we've spoken with so many people who did stay um, during incredible incredible violence. And, and you know, I think at one point um, I I read that you I had to to really think about it when you said that so many people sometimes are self delusional, right? They think they're going to be protected. It's almost like being a war correspondent. So, so why do so many people? Uh, stay? Why didn't more people flee? Were, were they not able to? Well, I think, first of all, I think if you look at uh, cities other than Mariupol, which was encircled pretty quickly and people mm. could not flee, and you know, many, many people died there uh, in the spring of 2022. Nobody knows how many, 10, 20, 30, 40,000. Nobody's been counting them. So uh, if you take this aside, in all the other cities on the front lines, most people did flee at the end. They, they did listen to Ukrainian authorities who organized evacuations, uh, but many didn't. And I think you're right. First of all, for people who haven't lived through war, it's very hard to imagine that it would happen. And then, you know, motivations are really different. Some people think it will never happen to them. Others have relatives they have to take care of. Others are too sick, too old to leave. Uh some others just believe in fate. Others tell me that, well, you know, this apartment is all I have. And then, you know, a week later, the apartment is, is in mm. smithereens because it was hit by a shell. Uh, there was also a small minority in some, time, in some towns in Donbass that was there because they wanted the Russians to come. and They were waiting for the Russians. That's also a fact. Do I know there are, are no real um, exact estimates from either side, but how many lives have been lost on both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side so far? And, and what, well, are the, what are the uh, estimates that you would consider reliable? Right. So uh, it's really hard to know. On the civilian side, the only numbers that we have are from the United Nations. That doesn't count anything. It hasn't verified. And so it doesn't count, for example, the people who died in Mariupol because the UN has no access to any of the occupied cities. So Ukrainian estimates are, you know, many tens of thousands of civilians died and tens of thousands of uh, soldiers. And, you know, we have seen American estimates of how many Russian uh, right. casualties there have been. They are in the hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. Far more than uh, 2014. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Far, far, far more. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, you're... I mean, as we said, you're a journalist, uh, you work for the Wall Street Journal, but you're also Ukrainian. So I wonder, what has it been like to cover this conflict when it's so personal? I think on some level, it's obviously much harder, especially, you know, I grew up in Kiev, and so every little piece of geography there has memories for me, memories of my childhood of growing up, you know, place where I had my first kiss, place where my grandmother took me to check out my eyes, you know, the library, the movie theater where I saw Fellini movies as a teenager. And so suddenly seeing these streets empty, dead, you know, everything's shuttered, people gone, cars gone, and the boom of artillery. It is, it's a, it feels like a personal insult. And I, I did feel, you know, angry, enraged by this. But then, you know, what do you do? You know, you just have to keep working and telling the story. And I think... By traveling through all the front lines and and uh, by going to witness what was happening, uh, it's it's in a way it's purifying. Uh, it makes it easier to handle the situation, but also it's you know I had a sense of mission. 
I probably took more risks in this war that I had taken in Iraq or in Afghanistan because of this sense of purpose. And, you know, through the book and through, through the articles that I was writing at the time, I just tell the stories of people. So, you know, I'm not writing about my own feelings, you know, try not to. And just trying to kind of be this almost like a lens of a camera in the field, zooming in on, on what other people are doing, what they're saying, what they what they're feeling. And people talk a lot in this circumstance. It was really interesting, uh, especially if you come to the areas that had been occupied by the Russians. Every interview lasts hours because people just say all those things they couldn't tell you. They couldn't tell anyone while the Russians were there for the previous many months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, some of the stories you told about the things that you went through, um, you know, going uh, from building to building, seeking cover while shelling was taking place overhead. Really um, dramatic, dangerous, dangerous circumstances that you wrote about in in this book. I'm wondering, you know, weren't you frightened? And did that sense of purpose kind of just um, alleviate a lot of that fear and keep you going? or, Or what was that about? Well, of course, you know, it's scary sometimes. It's usually scary afterwards once you realize what you've done. Uh, um, I was blessed to work uh, with uh, you know, a great photographer throughout uh, throughout this, uh, the, the reporting in Ukraine, uh, Mano Bravo, a Spanish photographer, Pulitzer Prize winner, who's very courageous, and uh, with, uh, you know, with great security advisors. And obviously, a lot of the a lot of the war experience reporting that I had from previous wars didn't apply in Ukraine. You know, in Afghanistan, and Iraq, you don't have to fear enemy aircraft or long-range missiles hitting you. So you you, you could estimate your risk uh, profile in a way that you can't really in Ukraine. So this but was again, the most dangerous for you, would you say? Oh, for sure, for sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. Go ahead. Were you, were you going to continue there? Sure, yes. And um, But again, you know, as a journalist, I could go and report and come and then pull out and, uh, and go somewhere relatively safer. Obviously, the civilians and the soldiers trapped in the cities could not. Mm-hmm. And, and you said you weren't supposed to write about your feelings, but there were times in the book where, where you did. And you talked about being angry, not just what was surprising to me was it was not just about what was happening in Ukraine, but you were angry about Russian lives lost as well. Um, angry about all of this. Explain a little bit of that anger for us. Yeah. So, you know, it was a very sort of foggy early morning and uh, we decided to follow Ukrainian special forces just as the city of Liman uh, was uh, being liberated from the Russians in October 2022. Mm-hmm. And so the Russians had just left it hours earlier, overnight. And uh, so we drove on this country road and suddenly stumbled upon this scene of death, you know, several smoldering vehicles and Russian soldiers lying on the asphalt, dead. You know, some of them, you know, with missing their you know, limbs and uh, you know, they were cut, cut down by shrapnel. And they were so f- recently killed that they seemed alive, kind of just resting. And I remember walking past there, looking into the, into the young faces of these men and thinking, why on earth did you have to die? And, you know, like one guy had his phone next to him. And I was thinking, you know, he's 
spouse or his mother is probably trying to text him right now, trying to figure out what's happening with him. And uh, for what? For what possible purpose did this man have to travel thousands of miles to Ukraine just to die in that morning? Just because you know someone in the Kremlin decided he wants to relive his imperial dreams. Um, that is traumatic, uh, Yaroslav. Very traumatic. How, how how do you heal from something like that? Well, by writing a book, you know, mm. putting it on paper. I guess that's one way, and uh, just by you know, I keep going, keep doing this. So I think uh, I think it's important. It goes back to this idea of a sense of purpose, because uh, you know, too many people look at the war in Ukraine in a sort of geopolitical frame. You know, Russia, America, West, NATO. But I think what's really important is to tell the stories of people whose lives are altered uh, by this conflict, sometimes altered forever. And I think the purpose of the book was that, just to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been some negotiations. Um, you know, are, are you optimistic that uh, talks can, can uh, go on <laughs> or at least maybe restart um, so there might be an end to some of this? I, I definitely don't think, and I think uh, it's not just me, you know, anyone you ask in the U.S. government or in, in Western uh, European governments, would tell you that they don't think that any peace process is possible before the U.S. elections, for sure, just because President Putin thinks he could get a much better deal from uh, President Trump if he gets reelected to the White House. But apart from that, I think the positions are just too far apart. Uh, Ukraine wants to remain independent, and Ukraine wants to regain its land, and Russia wants to eliminate Ukraine from the face of uh, the earth, you know, from the map. You know, so how can you negotiate with a government that still believes that it wants to exterminate you and it can exterminate you? And it, the odds of that are improving because Ukraine right now is outgunned. Ukraine uh, has a severe shortage of ammunition because uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives for now four months have declined to uh, vote mm-hmm. on uh, further military aid for Ukraine. And that is, uh, you know, that is giving Putin new hopes that he can have it all. Yeah, we're going to talk, I think, more about the U.S. and and help uh, that has um, assisted the Ukrainian effort throughout the two-year war. But we have to stop and take a break right now. We're talking about the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging 
in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. We're working on an episode for later this week about our brains and how age affects our memory and cognition. President Biden and former President Trump are both over the age of 75, but what conclusions can be drawn about their verbal missteps and their aging brains? Age might make it tougher to recall names and dates, but age can also bring wisdom and clarity. So, older listeners, what does aging feel like to you? Has it affected your brain function or your memory for good or bad? And for not-so-old listeners, maybe you've observed a relative, a parent, who's become not quite as sharp as they once were. Share your experience by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. If it's not on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps, or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 617-353-0683. Today on the show, we're discussing the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're joined by Yaroslav Travamov, chief foreign affairs correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. And Yaroslav, before the break, we were talking about help from the West. And we've heard a lot about this throughout the war. And, And your new book is about pretty much the first year of the war between Russia and Ukraine. And there's been a lot of piecemeal help from the West, particularly the U.S., in part because I think no one really understood that the war was going to go on this long and people did think it was going to uh, go over quick, uh, be over quickly. But I'm wondering um, what you think about the comments that have been made since, particularly recent comments by Russian President Putin, that the reason this war has gone on so long is because of help from the West. And without it, uh, perhaps there would have been some type of negotiated deal to end the fighting. What do you think of that? Well, obviously, if there hadn't been this help from the West, the war could have ended with the Russian flag raised over Kiev. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is also a possibility, and that's clearly what President Putin wants. I think, uh, you know, if we look at it uh, historically, the very first few months of resistance really occurred without much Western help in terms of weapons. The Ukrainians repelled the Russian armies uh, from Kiev using their own Soviet vintage uh, weapons and ammunition. American artillery only started to arrive around July 2022. And then it was really piecemeal. It was piecemeal for various reasons. One of them was this fear of Russian red lines, fear of provoking uh, a possible nuclear response. And Moscow kept threatening. And But every time these capabilities arrived, you know, there was no Russian red line, as it turned out. You know, Ukrainians compared this to uh, extinguishing a fire. There was a fire and Ukraine needed a bucket of water. And it got a bucket of water, but in, you know, 20 little glasses. And so uh, over time, the, the, you know, the, the fire kept ranging. If all this help had arrived early on, the fire could have been extinguished. You and think so? You, you think it could have been completely extinguished? This war would have been over. Ukraine would have been in control of its borders had the U.S. and other Western and other Western nations provided more military support from the get-go. I think Ukraine would have been in a much better position. And the pivotal moment that I talk about a lot in the book was in September, October 2022, when 
Russia only had about 100,000 combat troops left in Ukraine. Its elite units were decimated. President Putin was refusing a call up of reservists to the mobilization because doing so would have meant acknowledging that his so-called special military operation was not going to plan. And Ukraine was asking for tanks, armored personnel carriers, fighting vehicles, more more uh, uh, artillery, uh, aircraft, battery missiles, and was turned down. Was told it's impossible. We cannot possibly have American or German tanks in the fields of Ukraine. That's too provocative. And so when the Ukrainian troops attacked in the Kharkiv region and routed the Russian army and broke through the Russian lines and kept pressing into Kherson, into Liman, uh, that offensive eventually uh, ran out of steam because Ukraine didn't have all this ammunition and all this equipment. Then there was a lot, long process of you know, reconsidering, and the following year, last year, 2023, the so-called Mountain of Steel did arrive. So Ukraine got its Abramses and Leopard tanks and Strikers and Bradleys and Patriot missiles, and is getting F-16s now. But, you know, by then, Russia had mobilized hundreds of thousands of troops, spent the winter building fortifications, laying out minefields, and when the Ukrainian counteroffensive was finally launched with all this mountain of steel last year, it didn't achieve success because Russia was ready and prepared and strong in a way that it wasn't during that, that pivotal moment in September, October of the previous year. Mm. And now, of course, U.S. support is is on hold, as you mentioned, uh, because of what's happening in in Congress here. But I, I, I wonder, you know, uh, are you... Uh, are you surprised, I guess, by the shift in attention to what's happening in Ukraine? And in the book, at the end, you do mention that there are other conflicts that have happened since the start of this war. There's a lot that's going on. I wonder if if you're concerned that perhaps attention has shifted um, and, and what that might mean for Ukraine. I think the concern is not that attention has shifted. It's concerned that you suddenly see a... Uh, significant, I don't want to say majority, but an important part of the Republican Party in the U.S. Uh, embracing Russian narratives on, on Ukraine and calling for pulling the plug on Ukraine at a time where, you know, the U.S. is really, you know, Russia has no economic leverage over the U.S. There's not much Russia can give the U.S. There is no economic pain inflicted on the U.S., unlike in Europe, because Europe has had to make sacrifices. Europe has had to severe its dependence on Russian natural gas. And the European economies are actually paying the price for that. But yet in Europe, you don't see this. Uh, Europe is ramping up its support. And in America, for reasons that are really hard to understand for U Ukrainians or Europeans, suddenly there is a desire to see Ukraine lose. You and, think so? Uh, obviously, this is, a this is not the entire Republican Party. Uh -huh. And you know, we've seen that in the Senate, there was a bipartisan uh, agreement on aid for Ukraine. Uh, but the fact is that the House of Representatives hasn't considered aid for Ukraine for four months now. So uh, I, I, I wonder, does that make you, what does that make you feel in terms of, of what might happen next? I mean, I know it's really difficult to predict, but are, are you really concerned about what could happen next in Ukraine? Because I know in the book you say, uh, although this fighting continues, it's clear that Ukraine has won the war for its independence. I mean, has it? Or is that now under threat? I mean, 
you know, it's it's impossible to predict the the, the future with 100% certainty. But uh, the fact is that Russia is also very exhausted. Now, Russia has finally managed to seize, for the first time, a Ukrainian town, Avdiivka. Just the over first, the weekend, the first, yeah. Yeah, the first gain it's made since uh, May last year at the cost of tens of thousands of soldiers. Uh, so, in uh, the U.S., accounts for only about half of aid to Ukraine. The Europeans account for the other half, and the European commitments are growing. Uh, but the fact is that because of this lag, you know, Ukraine is losing more people. You know, Every day of delay is measured in more Ukrainian casualties. And so you create the price that Ukraine is paying for its independence is increasing. Well, there were some recent reports in the New York Times that Ukraine has actually been forcing men uh, into the military. Do you think that Ukraine is going to need to do this? When you wrote about the fighters in, uh, in Ukraine and many of the folks who were volunteering and, and motivated, um, you know, time has a way of changing things, as you just mentioned. And I wonder... Does Ukraine need to take these kinds of steps to force people into military service so it has enough manpower to continue to fight? Well, Ukraine has been mobilizing people you know, since the very beginning of uh, the full-scale invasion. It's not something new. But this is forcing people, actually, according to the New York Times reports. Well, forcing as in, you know, like drafting, like, you know, like there was a draft in the U.S. during the Vietnam War. Uh, both Russia and Ukraine are, you know, have compulsory mobilization uh, for for certain kinds of uh, people, especially people with military experience. Um, unfortunately, many of the volunteers have been killed or injured, and so uh, for the state to survive, it does need to draft young people to fight. Mm-hmm. And it, are there other? I mean, are there other ways for Ukraine to? Uh, to make sure that it has what is needed for it to continue in this fight? I mean, what do you think? If if there's a stall in aid from the U.S., and I know, you, as you mentioned, it's 50%, uh, but if there is some waning interest on the part of some international partners and if there is uh, concern about having enough manpower, what, what do you what do you think or what do you expect Ukraine might do? Will it change its strategy or what could happen here? Well, I think that there isn't really a waning interest in Europe. I think in Europe there is a sense of unease and alarm and understanding that Europe needs to do more, and it is doing more. In Germany, uh, the UK, France have all just signed security agreements with Ukraine. They're ramping up their ammunition production, and the European Union just passed a $54 billion uh, package of aid for Ukraine. So, uh, But as far as the Ukrainians are concerned... If the Russian goal is to destroy the country, a state, and take it all over, it's not like they can change that. So mm. they have to fight, even uh, you know if the conditions are much less advantageous to them. There are some ways and some technologies. You know, Ukraine has been pioneering the usage of combat drones and uh, in revolutionary ways that have uh, offset the shortage of artillery ammunition, for example. You know, mm-hmm. This precision drone revolution is something that is unique to this battlefield. Uh, but, you know, Ukraine on itself can only do so much. It does need help. 
Right. You know, a lot has happened uh, since uh, some of the events uh, that you wrote about in this book, certainly since the end of the first year of the war between Russia and Ukraine. There have been changes in the Ukrainian military leadership. Uh, you mentioned the plane crash uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, took the leader of, of Russia's uh, mercenary forces. Then there was the death last week of Alexei Navalny um, and the major Russian victory uh, in Ukraine over the weekend. A lot has been happening here. Um, do those events, do you think, how, if, if you could pick, say, two of them as uh, big influencers on what might happen here, which ones would you choose? Well, first of all, I wouldn't describe the loss of Avdiivka as a major victory. It's a town of 30,000 people, um, you know, not even in the top 1,000, I think, towns in Ukraine. So um, as for uh, the pivotal moments, I guess the disappearance of Wagner as a fighting force mm-hmm. uh, is is pretty important because Wagner was the only Russian union that was really capable of offensive operations in Ukraine. And it was destroyed first in Bakhmut and then in the surprising by Prigozhin, which for the first time showed the cracks that this war is produced inside the Russian regime. We don't know what else is happening there under the surface. It's a hard but brittle society. And so uh, the Russians are dying in large numbers in this war. And uh, there will be repercussions at some point from that. And I think that's something to keep in mind as we look forward because Russia is not invincible. You know, the victories that it has achieved came at a tremendous, tremendous cost. You know, Russia lost probably more people for Avdiivka than the Soviet Union lost in the entire year, in the entire war in Afghanistan. There was a lot of coverage uh, in this country of uh, the recent interview with Russia President Putin uh, and former Fox News host uh, Tucker Carlson. And I'm wondering if you had a chance to see that there were some, it was a lengthy interview, it was about two hours long. There was a lot of talk about about Ukraine, uh, the history of Ukraine, the Russian objective, and um, the Russian president saying that he did, in fact, want to have negotiations uh, with Ukraine. Um, I'm wondering what you thought of that interview? Well, I think the very fact that he spent the first half an hour of it laying out all the reasons for why Ukraine doesn't really exist, shouldn't really exist, and Ukraine is a Russian land, and tells you all you need to know. I think the, the, the negotiations he was floating were negotiations with the U.S. about how the U.S. should hand over Ukraine to him, in his view. Uh, the Russian goals are the same. And I think uh, negotiations for him is another way of saying capitulation by Ukraine. So how long, how much longer do you think it could it could go on? Um, it's It's been two years, almost, just about. Uh, how much longer do you think uh, this fighting will continue? Your book suggests that you think it might be some time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I certainly don't think it could end this year. And it could go for longer. And it's hard to predict because now it's a war of attrition. It's a war of attrition that does favor the Ukrainians because the Russian military is losing more tanks, more howitzers, more armed personnel carriers than they can manufacture or repair. So so at some point they will run out, uh, unless, say, two or three years down the line. Um, but ultimately it comes down to the resilience of the two societies, which society will crack first for internal reasons because of the 
pressures from the casualties, from the you know the economic impact of the war, uh, the overall international environment. And we don't know that. It could be Russia, it could be Ukraine. And uh, we've seen it in World War I, when the front lines then moved and moved for years and years. And then when they moved, it was because of what was happening inside Russia or inside Germany. And uh, I think whether Ukraine is the one to crack first depends on international aid, American aid and European aid. That is indispensable to keep it afloat. And I just want to make sure that folks know, as we end this conversation in the last minute here, can you explain the title of your book is Our Enemies Will Vanish, and that's a line from the Ukrainian National Anthem. Absolutely. It's, uh, well, it goes, Our Enemies Will Vanish Like Dew at Sunrise. It's a sort of very poetic, nonviolent uh, way of vanishing, I guess. And, uh, you know, it comes from the anthem that was written in the 19th century when Ukraine did not exist as a separate country. The language was banned. The culture was banned. This anthem was banned. And yet Ukraine found a way to be reborn again and again to achieve its independence uh, more than 30 years ago. And now, you know, two years into the war, it's still standing, still fighting and refusing to give up. All right. Yaroslav Travamov, chief foreign affairs correspondent at The Wall Street Journal and author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It was great. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.